Good morning. This is John Richardson speaking with you from Toronto, Canada. Today is Monday, May the 22nd, 2023, which is a long-standing holiday in Canada this particular long weekend. But today I am joined by a return and consistent guest, Michi Kwan, who, if you listen to previous podcasts with her before, and this is directly relevant to our topic today, is a lawyer uh, who I think is perhaps temporarily uh, left law, a master's degree in law from the University of Manitoba, a political candidate, and all-around extremely interesting human being. And we've got an interesting topic for today. So welcome back, Michiquan. How are you? I'm great. Um, it's nice to see you again, John. Yeah, it's been a few weeks, I think, hasn't it? Has it been about a month or so? I think so. Yeah, it's been a while. Okay. Yeah, nice to continue these discussions. Okay. I think to give this some context, though, uh, you know, we've talked about this a few times, but I think this is directly relevant as foundation for our discussion today. So you are a licensed lawyer in the province of Ontario, I believe, in Manitoba as well? Correct. Okay, or you've been admitted to the bar, and you have a law degree from the University of Manitoba and a master's in law from the University of Manitoba. And your area of interest has been, uh, how do I call it, First Nations law, Indigenous law issues, treaty law issues? Uh Yes. Uh, all of the above. Just, you know, I might say a fascinating, fascinating area, topic, area of law that is, I think, to be brutally honest, invisible to something like 95% of the legal profession. Would you agree with that? Perhaps higher. <laughs> yes. Perhaps higher, because I've got, to, I've got to tell you, full disclosure, I've, I've learned more about this from our discussions than I think... Uh, ever in all of my years of just sort of existing in the world. So I begin by thanking you for the education. And uh, previous listeners to this podcast will know how I've expressed my, my disappointment as gently as possible that, you know, that, uh, you know, you sort of at least temporarily put your legal career in abeyance. But I understand you're going back to do a PhD in law. That's still on track. Yes, I'm excited. That is very, very exciting. But, uh, you know, you're telling me that you had an interesting legal-related issue which has whetted your appetite for getting back into law. And I think this is such an interesting topic. So what's up? What happened? So somebody stumbled across my, my thesis, my work, and it really struck a chord with their legal matter that they're facing right now. And it's in Northwestern Ontario. So it's up in my, my area and it's a, it's a non-status. So the man didn't have Indian status. There were so many mechanisms as to how we lost that. Like if you were born from a, um, a white, a white, um, male then you lost your status so indian well, so women, for a white father if you're the child of a white father you lose your status yeah because women were considered properly property by by the canadian government so indian women when they married a white man 
all of a sudden they weren't Indian anymore. So they lost their status now. Just let's talk about that a little bit before we get to the main event, because that's that's absolutely fascinating, right? So so day one, okay, you know, you're a woman who is pretty clear, pretty sure, and recognized as can I use the phrase cluster word status Indian? Yes, that's okay. correct. All right, status Indian. And now what you're telling me is that, so a woman status Indian who marries a white man, I presume by that you mean a non-status Indian. I presume yeah. it's not restricted to just white men, okay? A, non, a non-status Indian automatically loses their status. Okay. Now, you know, as I think back through the snippets of things that I think I've known in my life, that triggers a memory trace. Okay. Now, is, is that still true? That ended 1982. Can you tell me how that ended? There was actually um, a lot of litigation by Indian women, and I believe that they went to the UN to appeal. So they went international law, like everything about how oppressive this was for... It was a gendered issue, right? Hmm. Well, I, I've got to tell you that as, as, you know, looking back in hindsight, uh, as bad as that is, it, it was also very, very common, uh, you know, certainly in the world of citizenship, uh, you know, 100 years ago, um, women who married non-citizens, right, would lose their citizenship automatically. I mean, there are some very famous cases in the United States over this, and you know, as I understand it, this was generally just sort of a an incident of the international law of citizenship. Okay, and and it does seem to me that what you call First Nation status is really citizenship, isn't it? Yes, exactly. And this is a good example of, in my opinion, a really targeted attempt to for genocide is what they've been calling right the the attacks on indigenous people here so to like a bad word at all to me i mean the word is bad but what i mean is accurate yeah i would agree with that yeah so to go after the woman the mother really disrupts the family the culture the community you know everything so it was a very targeted um legal mechanism and, and that wasn't the only route to lose your status. I believe this man actually um, had a, a relative who served in the, the army. So when you enlisted in war, you also lost your status. So again, this would be males, right? This is absolutely fascinating because these have direct analogs in historical ways that people would lose citizenship generally right yeah okay so what we have is somebody who the person who read your thesis was a status indian and lost it i think they're their ancestor okay an answer an ancestor lost it and therefore this particular individual never got it would that be the right yes. way to put it yes correct Okay. All right. So, yeah. So here we go. Very interesting. All right. So now 
reading your thesis in the library, remind me again what your thesis was about. It was explaining, um, well, I guess the <laughs> the difficulties with interpreting the treaty as a two-sided agreement with one-sided interpretation. So it went over... A two-sided agreement with only one party, namely the government of Canada, being allowed to say what it means. Exactly. Right. Sounds very much to me like U.S. tax treaties. Okay. All right. I mean, this is not without precedent in the modern world, I can tell you. Interesting. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, this stuff has, you know, this, this stuff has direct analogs in areas that, you know, you, you haven't been exposed to. Yeah. You should not be exposed to if you want to keep your life sane. But anyway. Uh, all right. Very, very interesting. I mean, that must have been just a fascinating, um, fascinating endeavor, that master's thesis. Yeah, I I really wished um, that I was able to uh, give testimony on it for this man and his his case. All right, I, well, let's let's go to the case and then how the thesis would have been relevant. So you know, the Reader's Digest version anybody can understand. So most people don't sign up to be defendants in criminal trials. Usually, they're forced into it, right? So what's what's the issue here? What's happening? It uh, it looked like they were they the government was going after the self rep man about tax evasion, and the taxation came down to status non status, is the corporation covered right? So it was a very nuanced. So so in other words, the outcome was somewhat determinative on a determination of the person's status. Well, that would impact that corporation right that entity that um ran the activities okay and really though his argument was citizenship was sovereignty meaning our laws our traditional laws indigenous laws here and how they are still here okay so let, let me just just to get clarity here though uh, I mean, are we in a position where if he is a status Indian, we get a certain result, and if he's not a status Indian, we get a different result? I don't think so. I think from what I... So I'll back up a little bit. Well, he may have lost status at some period through marrying status again it was reclaimed in their family line and his son is actually a chief of a first nation okay so he married essentially back into the citizenship the canadian yeah recognized citizenship okay and and therefore his son who's a chief uh, his status. was yeah. the recipient of the citizenship that he married into is that what's happening yeah yeah god all right Okay, so the issue. So he's being charged with what? I actually didn't even get there. I, I got told a week before court, and he obviously has spent quite a few years in representing himself against um, the charges. I believe that there was also 
several investigations. One, the last one that he claimed. So again, these are like decades on decades on decades, right? His matter um, was from the RCMP who did not find any any wrongdoing or criminal um, substance to it. So it's it's very complicated, just the historic nature of it. How long has it been going on for the whole the whole chain of affairs, chain of events? He makes it sound like it's been a lifelong of the Canadian state on him. Chronic lifelong, and- lifelong persecution from the government. Yeah, that's what uh, that's what he described. <laughs> Probably true. Yeah, well, that's what I'm learning. I mean, what once once this kind of persecution begins, it's hard to put a stop to it. Well, he was very active um, politically too, right? And he, I believe, gave testimony to ministers and really key people describing how they would prevent um disobedience by by the indians by by the first nations by the communities through mechanisms like audits right so using that big stick in other words if you don't behave in a certain way we'll audit you yes well, you know, a president, former President Obama, used to joke about that. You know, being, you know, having the, uh, you know, the ability to get the IRS to audit people. Yeah, and that's how they would toe the line with the chiefs to not have <laughs> the issues that are this man is bringing forward on his own. Mm-hmm. All right, so we've got this guy who, whatever the merits of the case. He's caught in this long-standing uh, issue with the government of Canada with criminal impl- implications and accusations. Uh, he is uh, defending himself and has been for a long time. And somehow, while he's, he, he's in the library and he uncovers your thesis. Now, that must have been a good feeling for you, at least. It was. It was very validating. He's one of two people that have made that discovery <laughs> so far, so far. Listen, two is better than most people get in a lifetime. You're way ahead of the game. You just don't realize it. Yes. Okay. And what part of your of your work? I mean, it's like this thesis has got to be 100 plus pages at least, right? I mean, how many, like, how many pages is this thing, this thesis? Yeah, so he's questioning this the the jurisdiction. He's saying, why is the Tax Act applying to me when this legislation was made at a time when Indians couldn't vote, right? Is that sort of a taxation without representation argument? Yep, he's raising that. He's, in my thesis, again, I I went into it, but even relying on previous case law, right? Stare decisis, judge-made law. Like, there's there's issues with that when they were made at a time when we were legal, Indians were legally barred 
from being represented in court, from being legally represented. So the government's position, of course, is that, well, uh, that may have been true historically, but that has nothing to do with present day issues, I, I presume would be their point, right? I wish I could say more. I got uh, kicked out of court pretty quick as soon as I appeared. Why were you kicked out of court? I, I would have thought that, uh, you know, you might have had interesting things to say. Or is that why I, you were kicked out of court? I I think I, I think that's exactly it. There's a. It was myself and um the former grand chief, and he too has interesting things to say, especially about how that political stick has been used, right? Historically, mm -hmm. yeah, and and can speak to going to bodies like the UN and being physically assaulted. And, and told what to say about Canadian corporations. And like, there was a lot that would have, you know, came out had the opportunity arose at trial for this man. A lot of inconvenient facts. Yep. Unhelpful facts. Well, you know, that's, that's what's meant when, uh, you know, is it? Years ago, I have you, you've given me a flick, a memory flicker from law school evidence class. A trial is not a search for truth; it's a search for proof. Mm -hmm. So, if we can keep the people with the evidence out, why not? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what happened. All right. So, well, that makes perfect sense to me. Uh, so how exactly were you was your particip were you was your participation made impossible? How were you removed? So um again, this man has been self-rep for several years to get to this stage of of trial. And you know, there's a lot of procedural fairness that was afforded to him being a self-rep. And um it wasn't until I guess his witnesses were called the experts, right? Where where issue arose. So this man's been going along and going through all the processes for I'm gonna say four years. I know it's been pre-pandemic, like that this particular stage of litigation had started against him. So I'm gonna just guess four years here. And he's going through and going through every hoop and every court appearance and everything. And it's not until literally day of calling the witnesses calling his experts and i appear along with six probably more uh cra lawyers because it was a virtual court up here in the north right we're still on uh virtual court appearances so there's six um screens of cra lawyers but probably more you know in the office behind the person right an army, an army of CRA lawyers. Yep, three in court and boxes on boxes <laughs> with this self-repped man screaming about sovereignty, screaming about jurisdiction, finding all the, the fallacies with, with the Canadian court <laughs> and how they are trying to steamroll him. 
well, you know, so much, so much, so much of the core process of litigation revolves around trying to make sure these things are not heard, right? Uh, you know, on procedural grounds, etc. All right. So, but I'm just curious. So, you know, all of it's, you know, it's sort of like, you know, going to the theater and all of a sudden the curtain goes up and, and the curtain goes up and observers would see the army of CRA lawyers on screens. They would see you on a screen. And the objective was to turn off your screen, essentially, right? They actually, uh, the judge, so again, colleague, you know, I, I thought there would be some <laughs> professional courtesy extended here and, you know, allow me to observe or, or hear the legal arguments that went back and forth. But I actually got removed to the waiting room. So the it's virtual the room. Yeah, the virtual waiting room. They they removed me from court. Did they give a reason? They they just brought me back and said uh, I wouldn't be um, testifying. <laughs> so that was it. Yeah, I I couldn't hear the legal arguments, which was really unfortunate because I am incredibly curious at this point. Well, that is unfortunate. But, but you know, I, I think that, you know, on a broader level, and this really underscores the importance of your very existence as a lawyer. All right, because, you know, I mean, how does a guy like this, where does a guy like this turn to, you know, find somebody with a, you know, basic fluency in these issues? I think that's why he was self-wrapped. I think that's probably a big part of it. Well, that's interesting. So now how does that contribute to your general enthusiasm to getting back and doing your PhD and all that? More enthusiastic, neutral, less enthusiastic, no relationship whatsoever. Well, it definitely sparked something inside of me that I didn't realize. Like I thought that fire, that passion for, you know, the Canadian law was totally extinguished but apparently it's not <laughs> if I am that disturbed by you know what I observe that process you know so so that's interesting that emotional aspect that's what uh spurned me frankly I mean is it a passion for Canadian law or a passion for trying to keep Canadian law away hmm Probably keeping Canadian law away and, and stay in the lane. It's really amazing, you know, how law is, you know, is, is used as a vehicle for obfuscation and oppression of people. It's, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? I mean, in a sense, these legislatures are by far the biggest thugs on the block. Yes. Shifting gears slightly, I saw a very interesting article in the Globe and Mail last week, which you may or may not have seen. Probably not, just because of what I don't think it was all got all that much exposure. But so here are the facts. Um, there is a, a First Nations group on the other side of the 49th parallel, meaning in the United States part 
Um, that is taking the position that they have a constitutional right to be consulted uh, over uh, some kind of industrial building being put together uh, in, on the Canadian side uh, on the basis of the part of the charter that uh, was used to define the duty to consult. And you know, I read this and I didn't understand it all that well. And I actually thought of you when I was reading it because I figured you'd probably understand it uh, certainly better than I do or could. But, you know, we talk about law being used as a, a mechanism for oppression, which it certainly is. But here we have a constitutional provision that's been interpreted to uh, afford a constitutional right to consultation for certain First Nations people in certain circumstances uh, as extending outside of Canada and allowing a you know clearly non-Canadian group of people to argue that they have the right to be consulted before a building goes up in, in British Columbia. What do you think of that? I think um, absolutely that uh, the impacts, right, do affect. So, like, let's just say water and how that flows, right? And so I'm not sure what is accompanied with, with the destruction, right, for this build. But that, um, I mean, that's clear. So what's going to happen here will flow down to wherever, right? So the other tribes, nations are impacted, and that, um, again, I think it's interesting to, well, this is also really interesting because they are relying on on the Canadian law. So the- That is fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, that this is, you know, the stick that they're choosing, right? Yeah. And yeah, to, to um, act accordingly and i also am really interested more in our our traditional laws so how does that relationship work with the bc first nations meaning here there's a lot of first nations that have different positions on the same issue right yeah. and and a lot of those positions vary based on financial um determinants all over the world, people follow the money. Yeah. So I'd be really interested in how that would reconcile if if the BC First Nation is actually for this development based on, you know, whatever benefits they're receiving directly. Yeah, that, that is a fascinating dimension of this that had not even occurred to me where, you know, uh, we, we have the, the First Nation people on the Canadian side in favor of this and the a group on the American side, presumably opposing it, although I think the issue has been framed in terms of they were right to the consultation. But in any case, mm -hmm. God, this could get messy pretty quickly, couldn't it? Yeah, and I think, again, the, the money, that is a huge influence, huge impact. So, I mean, I, in my very simple-minded way, okay, you know, I looked at this and thought, this is crazy. 
you know, uh, I mean, just, I mean, you know, where does this end, right? And um, my initial thought was that, uh, you know, the section one of the charter, that even were you to find the violation of the right, that section one of the charter would probably override it anyway. Do you think that's a reasonable? It's going to depend. Yeah. If you're looking at, at it from a Canadian law perspective, that's probably what they'll find, right? Well, they go into a Canadian court, right? I mean, you know, the basis of the thing is they have the right to the consultation because of the charter right, uh, which which gives First Nations groups the right to the consultation. All right. Now, let's extend this further. I mean, let's so let's say that, I mean, you know, you make a very interesting point about how you know, activity going on in Canada, say with the water, you know, it trickles down to the United States and obviously, you know, there's an effect. So let's say theoretically that, uh, you know, for whatever reason, this isn't redressed and continues. Are there international law remedies that then could possibly be invoked? So since we've been, you know, barred from Canadian law, a lot of outreach went to UN. Mm-hmm. And and that's also why I used international law and the tools there to uh, explain Indigenous law, right? And um, to, like, ground Indigenous law, since it's a spiritual um, aspect. But anyways, I, I personally haven't seen the UN offer much of anything mm-hmm. i'm really you know i've really put some thought into it um lately i guess with what i've seen with with palestine and israel and i i believe palestinians are indigenous peoples and you know they meet the the definition the the un standard and you know the so i just I'm even wondering like what their their role was and was it just designed to um you know around World War II there like to claim the state back Good question. I mean, you've got all these international, you know, the International Declaration of Human Rights and you know a number of things that follow from that and uh, I don't know what they mean I mean I, I don't I don't know if any of this stuff's legally binding or not I mean clearly it's asked it's not okay I mean so what is it? it's all the aspirational stuff then yeah it's it's a tool to shame like there have been a lot of chiefs like even dating back to like I think the 20s like could you imagine being on a canoe crossing the oh shit like just trying to get heard right and very hard very hard for minority groups to get heard yeah and even then like what has that amounted to like i really trying to look at the substance the actions and and you're right there's a lot of decorate declarations there's a lot of forums there's a lot of bodies there's a lot of entities and i don't see them used at all um never mind in a, a local like in a canadian state context Right. No ability. I mean, is the is the purpose of this type of stuff to 
force a conversation, if you will, force a dialogue, force the government to respond to a complaint. Is that what it's about? Or was it about uh, creating a, a Jewish state and recognizing to, you know, not have that occur again? Like, that's the only outcome I really saw. Mm -hmm. Wow, interesting stuff. Yeah. All right. Uh, maybe we can pick this up or something related to it as we continue on. But this has been a really, really interesting conversation. And on a broader level, I think it certainly validates your decision to do that PhD in law, continue exploring this stuff. And so what are your final thoughts for today? Words of wisdom, messages to the world. Hope. I know we talk a lot <laughs> of the situation and how dire it is, but, but you got to have hope maybe not belief in some of these institutes or bodies or even people, but, but there has to be hope. Hope has to kept, be kept alive. Sort of the arc of justice. What is it? The arc of justice is long, but it bends. No, what? the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Is that the quote? All right, nice one. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been great. Thanks for the conversation. And once again, I'm speaking again with Ms. Shaquan. It's May the 22nd, 2023. And I look forward to our next conversation. Miigwech.